Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. There's two points that I want you to see from this text. God's judgment and our response, our worship. The first point will be a bit longer and the, the second point will be some concluding thoughts. So God's judgment. Um, there's a great theologian, musician, um, a man with, I'd say he has a perfect jawline, um, T.J. Warren. And he often says, our relationship with God has to be first about the who it is that we worship before the what or the how to worship. And so this psalm begins answering the question, who is it that we worship? What is he like? Um, Before Asaph, the psalmist speaks these prophetic words for God, waking up the slumbering Israelites, he reminds them and us who he is. And the main thing he wants us to know in this text is that he is a powerful judge. We learn that from his throne in Zion, he's making all things beautiful. All of his creation, it's his. All things operate at his command. What he speaks into being comes into being. God is not silent, he is not distant, he is not hard to find. This invites us to look around Did you feel the wind, the waves? Do you see creation? It's declaring his glory. It's showing off his power. For God is the great judge who will gather his faithful ones. You know, I heard this word, and when I read this word gather, it sparks in me the many passages in the the Gospels, particularly in in the Gospel of Matthew, uses this word many times. John the Baptist is previewing Jesus' ministry in Matthew 3, and he says that Jesus, the one coming after me, is mightier than I. We see the allusion here to Psalm 50. He is the Almighty One, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. Again, this allusion to this fire. It says in Matthew 3, 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And when Jesus at the end of his ministry speaks about the end times in Matthew 24, he says this, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. God himself is judge. He is the great judge who will gather his faithful ones. Uh, There's a famous image of Jesus Uh, which we can't look at, Um, but I've heard about it. I'm kidding. Um, It's called the Panto Crater. Um, And this this image of Jesus' face, it kind of looks like the Marvel character Two-Face. 
Um, and so when you look at it, it doesn't quite, the symmetry is not quite there. One side of his face is gentle and accepting and warm and merciful and compassionate. And the other side of his face is the appearance of a king's sternness. It's the appearance of a judge's command, a person not to be messed with, the powerful leader of armies. And this passage highlights that side of his face, that part of his character. And I think if we're being honest, um, judgment, that side of his face, the sternness, this power, his command, it's not a part of God's character that sits well with us. Um, You know, I titled this sermon, um, Rejoicing in God's Judgment, because this is a song written of Asaph, It is to be sung and rejoiced in. We are to sing about God's judgment with all of our heart. And I think in a moment of honesty, God's judgment makes us more uncomfortable than it makes us rejoice. I think God's judgment is maybe something that you may be embarrassed by. It feels like you're on the hook to explain away to your non-believing friends why there's a God who would judge. But God is judge, and that's a good thing. It's nothing wrong with God, so therefore it must be something wrong with us. And so I want to help us understand God's judgment. Um, I preached a 30-minute sermon um, on this word judgment last semester in the series I was doing with RUF, and I want to take 30 minutes and trim it down to about eight because I want to help us grapple with this passage And I want us to rejoice in God's judgment. And for those of you who are uncomfortable with the idea of God's judgment, here's where I want to start. We ourselves are always making judgments. Right now, you might be making a judgment about me. We interpret the world with immediate judgment. It's almost as if we're made in the image of God. You're going to get into car on the way home, and some of you are going to ask this question to your spouse or to your friend. What'd you think? How was the service? You're going to go to lunch afterwards, and you're going to get back in your car, and you're going to ask, how was the food? You know, today in, in society, if you're single and you're wanting to date, apps have taught you how to make, how to judge a book by its cover and make an immediate judgment. You swipe right or you swipe left. We judge every experience, we judge every person, we judge on small scales and big scales, we judge individuals, we'll judge a whole church, even though we only know one person in it. We'll judge a whole country, we'll judge a whole time period. We're all judges. We all think we know right and wrong. We all make judgments coming from our own conception of beauty, our own conception of goodness. Since the fall of humanity, we all believe, everyone in this room, we all believe that the world evolves around us and that we are just this little king or queen in our own little kingdom and that if everyone did what you thought was best, if everyone believed exactly how you believed, then this world would become a better place. And what we see are people battling, trying to create a world where we could just get the bad things, the bad people, the bad ideas. If we could just get rid of all of them, 
then we'd create paradise. And it's kind of what God's doing. Making paradise. Bringing heaven to earth. And he's actually the only pure, sinless, wise, righteous, eternal, almighty being in the universe who knows true beauty, who knows true justice, who shows true mercy. So we don't mind that we're always making judgments, but the minute that God is thought to be judge, we're unsettled. You know, one commentator said, judgment is comparatively a simple and straightforward topic, but it weighs upon every aspect of theology, namely God himself, his character, human nature, and perhaps most emotionally weighty, the moral realities of the last day. What this commentator is saying is that the Bible is actually pretty straightforward. Um, It's pretty clear about the reality of God's judgment. We just don't like to hear it because of the sensitivities and the cultural values of our day. But I promise you that every slave in the Americas during that horrible 400-year period was clinging on to God's judgment towards those who did them evil. Emily Burke, she was a school teacher in the North in the 19th century, and she wrote in 1850, I've never met an African slave who was a universalist, for they believe in future retribution for their masters from the hand of a just God. God is judge, and that's a good thing. And judgment, whether you want to see it or not, is a central theme throughout Scripture. Sin enters the world in Genesis 3, and then God makes a judgment in the next chapter in Genesis 4. Cain and Abel both bring sacrifices to God, similar here to what's going on in Psalm 50, and God judges one as acceptable and the other as unacceptable. Abel's heart was in it and Cain's wasn't. And then God's greatest act of judgment in the Old Testament, um, funny enough, has been turned into cute bath toys for kids. And it's the story of God's judgment on humanity, the flood of Noah. And this is where it gets interesting, and this is where I nerded out with all of our students. Um, And I invite you to turn to Genesis 10 if you have your Bible. so Noah, Noah passes out drunk, they get on land, it's the first thing he does, and his son Ham mistreats him, and Noah curses Ham's lineage. And Genesis 10 is the next chapter, and usually it's, it's a genealogy, and so you skip over it, and you're not, you don't think it's, it's really needed. But I promise you, if you go read Genesis 10, it will help you understand all of the battle and the division all of the the names that you get lost in when you're reading your Old Testament, it all is explained right here. And I want to point point out one part. So so Ham, his, his lineage is cursed, and he has sons and grandsons, Canaan, the enemies of Israel, and Cush. And Cush has a son named Nimrod, probably the coolest name in the Old Testament, Nimrod, and it says in chapter 10 that Nimrod stood against the Lord. And Nimrod sets up two kingdoms, and those two kingdoms are Babylon and Assyria. 
Babylon's the same word as Babel. And so if you go to the next chapter, we see Nimrod's kingdom, Babel, rising up, trying to reach the heavens before it's destroyed. So Nimrod, the one who stands against the Lord, sets up Babylon and Assyria. And when he traced the story of judgment through the Bible, God continually is commanding Israel to bring judgment on Canaan and Babylon and Assyria. But instead, uh, the capital of Assyria is Nineveh. It's the place that Jonah goes and preaches repentance to them. But instead, Israel becomes just like these people. They worship like them. They love like them. And who is it that judges and eventually brings Israel into exile? It's Nimrod's kingdoms. Babylon and Assyria. And so in the midst of this exilic chaos, there becomes this prophetic hope of a great king who would destroy Babylon and Assyria, who would destroy the force of evil. And Jesus comes onto the scene as the great almighty king who has authority over the seas and the demons and it terrifies his disciples. And in him, judgment finds its finale. In him, evil is defeated. And at the end of our scripture, if you want to flip to Revelation 18, there's so much allusion here to Psalm 50, and it helps us make so much sense of judgment. But I want to skip around and read a few sections of of chapters 18, 19, and 20. We read this. This is detailing the end times, the great judgment. And in verse 2 of chapter Revelation 18, it says, fallen, fallen is who? Babylon, the great. And then John goes on to describe Babylon. She's become a dwelling place for demons. Babylon represents all evil. All nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Continuing in verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, they will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. These are people who love her evil. They'll be so sad at her departure. They'll stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And then in verse 20 and 21, rejoice over her, O heaven, all you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And chapter 19 begins, and this is what I heard, and it seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And then we get to this beautiful passage in Revelation 21, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down from heaven 
God had prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice with the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is the Christian story of judgment, and it's a good thing. It's about a God powerful enough to destroy evil. For God is a mighty one, God the Lord. He speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silent. He's taken on the biggest blow from evil and has overcome. Oh, death, where is your sting? Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. And he gathers his faithful ones, those who made a covenant with him by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, his justice, for God himself is judge. God is judge, and it's a good thing. So how do we respond? We respond, point two, with true worship from the heart. This is my second, final, and much shorter point, our worship. Um, in college, I bounced around from, from roommate to roommate. Um, I transferred to TU uh, my sophomore year, and I had a new roommate, and he joined a fraternity, and so he moved into the house his junior year, and so I found a new roommate. Uh, me and this new roommate made a bunch of terrible decisions together. Fortunately, I stayed in school, but he dropped out. So I had to find a new roommate last second. And there was a guy that I worked with at the intramural department at TU, and I didn't know him very well, but I knew that he needed a roommate, um, and so did I. And so um, we moved in with one another, and it didn't take me very long to learn that he was one of those uh, perpetual liar types, like the guy who, who lies over just the smallest and dumbest things. Um, I remember... Early on, one of the signals is that uh, I mean, he was, you know, he was okay at, at basketball, but he he told me that he got Division One scholars scholarships, but came to Tulsa um, for for academic reasons. And I just like, there's no way that's true. Um, I, I remember walking in one day from class, and he was watching the surfing competition on on YouTube. I'm like, oh man, that's kind of random. Um, I didn't know that you liked surfing. And he's like, I'm a, I'm a big surfer, grew up surfing. He grew up in Iowa. Um, and the final straw is I had, my senior year started getting into swimming laps. And I'd go to the Y and I'd swim laps. And he told me one day that he's a big swimmer. He actually came to TU to swim on their, on their men's swim team, on their men's swim team. Guys, they don't have a swim team. I, I don't think, maybe... Maybe 30 years ago they did. Um, like, what? He's a total liar. And I think it was that point that I stopped talking to him um, and judged him. All right. 
I don't know if you know someone like that, but I, I saw right through him. Like I wasn't, I wasn't putting up with what he was saying. And here in the second half of the psalm, God is speaking as the great judge who sees right through us. And his rebuke and warning to Israel and to us is this. Many of you are going through the motions. You talk the talk. Maybe even sometimes you walk the walk. But you're doing none of it for me. Just like my roommate, we're lying. In regards to verses 16 on, John Calvin has this vast commentary on the Psalms, and he says this, loudly here the Spirit of God has asserted that there is a form of godliness unaccompanied by the grace of faith and repentance, which is but a sacrilegious abuse of the name of God. God's not messing around. Are you? And what God does is he, he calls out their false worship. And from the, the things that we get here, I think we can make some assumptions of what true worship looks like. And this list is not exhaustive. It's just what's mentioned in this one chapter that Blake assigned me. And so there's five things. First, verses 7 through 13, God is saying, you've missed the point. I've never cared about the animals. I don't need them. They're all mine. I'm not hungry. I'm not thirsty. I don't eat their flesh and drink their blood. It was never about the animals, your sacrifices. It's always been about your heart. That's what I want. He's telling them if you've lost touch with what that bloody sacrifice means, then it's of no use to you. It's all about seeing my heart of mercy and provision and forgiveness for you. There is love in that blood. Won't you see it? And in verse 14 and 15, and then again in verse 23, he sees what we want. He wants a thankful, a grateful heart. That's what he wants. You know, Dave, Dave Zoll, as an author and theologian, podcaster, he, he says this in a book, gratitude is a natural response to salvation. It does not require coercion or encouragement to the extent that the individual understands what has happened. Gratitude will flow organically and abundantly from their heart. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, rejoice always, Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. It's almost as if he's repeating Psalm 50. This is what God wants. He wants a grateful heart. He wants you to see what the blood means. Second, we see true worship as loving God's discipline and holding firm to his word. Verse 17 shows us false worship looks like hating being called out in error. 
Whereas true worshipers see it as grace, being made pure and holy. False worshipers keep his words out of view. True worshipers see it as the word of life. Like Peter, when everyone else leaves and runs away and life looks grim, Jesus turns to him and he turns to us and asks, will you leave too? And we say, no, where else would we go? You have the very words of eternal life. We hold the word in front of us, not behind us. Third, true worshipers hate sin. We see that God's issue with Israel is that they are plotting evil. They look at thieves and they clap. And this could be a whole sermon, but as I've thought about what just some practical ways that, that we can flesh this out and apply it, two things came to my mind. One, speaking personally, I think I applaud sin in what I watch. I learn to love sin and applaud evil through what I binge. Second, another application of this is, is you and your business. Are you calling out the things that you see that are wrong or do you stay silent? It's worship to call out when there's greed and when there's thievery and when there's lust for more. True worshipers hate sin. Fourth, true worshipers are surrounded by believers. Verse 18 says that we see false worshipers keep company with adulterers. This reminds me of Psalm 1 who says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. You know, working with college students, there's, there's always, a, almost 100% of the time, there's a common denominator for people who walk away from the faith. And you know what it is? It's a boy or a girl who likes them. And they're not a believer. That's all it takes. And sooner or later, that person starts keeping company with an adulterer. And they're gone. True worshipers are surrounded by believers. Lastly, and fifth, true worshipers are known for what they don't say. And if I were to pick any of the, these five, I think this would be the loudest wake-up call for the church today. It'd be verses 19 and 20, because we all have a microphone. So God asks, how are you using it? Do you give your mouth or your fingers as they type? Do you give it free reign? Do you speak slander against your brother? Mark this then, you who forget God. Wake up, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. You know, passages like this, again, this list is not exhaustive, but passages like this, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna end by, by saying this. Passages like this do two things for us. 
One, they help us see Jesus, who is the great judge, but who also fits all five of these things because he is the great savior and the great friend. Jesus is the one who broke bread and gave thanks to his father for what he was about to go through. Jesus is the friend who loved the Lord's discipline with you and I in mind. Jesus is the great friend who hated evil and destroyed sin. Jesus is the good friend and savior who surrounded himself with believers and disciples and is making a big family of sons and daughters. And lastly, Jesus is the great friend and savior who went silently to the cross he was known for what he did not say and was shorn by his shearers for you and I. Passages like this help us see just who Jesus is. And also passages like this, it wakes us up from a slumbering faith. And it leads us to clearer and more particular repentance that we may be pure, that we may grow in our faith that we may walk in obedience. Um, Our own confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says this about our works, which is, I just rattled off some works. It's a scary word, some works. And our confession says that these good works done in obedience to God's commands are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness. It almost puts boots on the ground for what a a thankful heart looks like. For a heart that rejoices in who God is and what he is doing. It It helps us manifest this thankfulness. And it strengthens our assurance. It edifies the brethren. It adorns the profession of the gospel. It stops the mouths of the adversaries and it glorifies God. So these things help us see Jesus. They help us see just how short we fall. They help wake us up from our slumbering and slobbering faith. And it turns us to repentance. We might turn away from these things which are destroying us and turn to true life which is found in Jesus. Let me pray.